the whole Gospel of Mark in a single verse. That's the title of chapter 1 of today's book, but it could just as well be the title for the whole book. Intrigue, keep listening. Hi, my name is Terence and I'm your host for Reading and Readers, a podcast where I review Christian books for you. Today, I review A Ransom for Many, Mark chapter 10 verse 45 as a key to the gospel by John Lee and Daniel Bruschi. 200 pages published by Lexham Academic in April 2023. Available for $9.99 in Amazon Kindle and $16.99 in Logos. I got this book as a review copy from the publishers. They have no input on this review. The big idea of the book is Mark 10.45 is the key verse to the Gospel of Mark. The whole Gospel of Mark can be summarized in one verse. And what does Mark 10.45 say? Let me read it for you. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I'm sure many of us are familiar with that verse. But is it fair to say that it is the key verse? And why would that be important? Well, when we are able to identify the key idea or key verse in the passage, there is a certain amount of satisfaction. When you find it, if it exists, with that one verse, you can unlock the meaning of the passage, chapter, or even the whole book. Take this famous verse for example. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That was from Romans 1, 16-17, and understanding the meaning behind the righteous shall live by faith is key to unlocking the whole letter, to understanding what Paul is saying in the letter, which got Martin Luther's mind blown, giving us the Reformation and to where the church is today. Knowing how powerful it can be to identify a key verse, it was with eager anticipation I came to today's book. I wanted to see how the authors substantiate their claim and how, if their claim is true, how this changes anything. I'm also particularly interested in the word ransom because this is the word that led to the ransom view of the atonement, a historical interpretation which we now have set aside. Once in a while, it's good to review what we believe to be true, just to affirm once again that we are right to believe so. So since we have set aside this view, the ransom view, I wanted to see whether it was right for us to do so. So I look forward to exploring the view in this book. So let's open the book. A Ransom for Many has six chapters, followed by two appendices and a bibliography, subject and author index, and scripture index. The chapters in this book are chapters one, chapter 1, the whole gospel of Mark in a single verse, chapter 2, the occasion of Mark's gospel, chapter 3, the purpose of Mark's gospel, then 4, the meaning and significance of Mark 10.45, 5, the function and contribution of that same verse, and chapter 6, learning to live the message of Mark 10.45. 
So in brief, chapters 1 to 3 gives a broad view of Mark's gospel, including the when, where, how, who, and why, while chapters 4 to 6 is the deep dive into that one verse, which he will go um, break it down into separate components and explain to us why it's so important for us to know what this verse says and how we are to live with uh, the, the implications of uh, knowing what 10, uh, Mark 10.45 says. Appendix 1 is an annotated recommendation for further reading, and here we have the authors recommending six books and explaining why. Uh, Appendix 2 is a short history of the ransom view of the atonement, and I'll say more on that later. Before reading this book, I did not fully appreciate how the Gospel of Mark was organized. Uh, the authors explain how, like in uh, chapter 4, um, we begin with, uh, in this uh, chapter 4, we begin with a wide view of Mark's Gospel, which gives us the needed outline and background for the breakdown that we will see in the same chapter, where he breaks it down, uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, into separate components, dealing with each component in some detail. Chapter 5 goes on to show that, uh, of, among many things, it shows that Mark 10, 45's strategic location within the Gospel calls our attention to its importance. In the Gospel of Mark, as they make their way to Jerusalem, Jesus tells the disciples three times that something big, something bad will happen to him there. And that prediction becomes more intense the nearer they get to Jerusalem. Now, interestingly, and this is the part that I never noticed, these three predictions are bookended by blind men. First, the blind man in Bethsaida in Mark 8, and later the blind Bartimaeus at Jericho in Mark 10. I did not realize that there were blind men in the beginning and the end of this trip to Jerusalem until I read it over here. And what is the significance of this uh, book ending, of this uh, inclusio? Well, the authors helpfully tell me the significance of this. I quote, These two stories symbolically anticipate the quote-unquote healing of the disciples' blindness toward the nature of Jesus' messiahship. The sequence of passion prediction, the disciples' error, and corrective teaching repeated within each of the three cycles, together with the framing of the journey section by the only two healings of sight in Mark's gospel, implies an intentional design on the part of the author." End quote. I like learning how to read the Bible. And this book teaches me how to see the patterns, the literary patterns, how to make sense of them, and to guide me to figure out, to know what is in the gospel writer's mind. And it's like learning how to follow animal tracks in the woods, in the forest. To the old hunter, the tracks are as plain as day. But to me, it's just dirt. But once he tells me what to look out for, then I start to see what he sees and I follow the trail to the prize. So I like that. I like how this approach, how knowing how to study the literary uh, uh, outline uh, forces me to read around the text because I need to 
outline it. I need to understand the context, the background. So this forces me to get a lay of the land. And what I learned from this book, I can apply to other books, to other parts of the Bible. And this makes me a better Bible reader. And I appreciate that. The second thing I want to share is not something new that I've learned from this book. Rather, it is a validation of something that I had to figure out on my own. Early in my Christian life, maybe it's true also for you, I struggled to understand why some verses are in the Bible. In some cases, I also struggle to understand why some books are in the Bible. What is the purpose? It seems to serve no point. And when I read, I'm not sure whether this is true or not, um, that Martin Luther uh, even wanted, was tempted to remove um, the epistle of, uh, James from the canon, I sympathized with him and thought I could suggest a few more books for removal too. <laughs> I have since moved past such thoughts and have grown to love each book of the Bible. They all belong in the canon. They all belong in the Bible. And how I arrive to this position was simply by asking the question over a long period of time, what happens if this verse or this book was missing? And just by asking that simple question, I soon realized that we don't realize or we don't appreciate what we have until we lose it. Try it. If you try losing or just removing certain parts of the Bible, even the simplest and even what seems to be the most inconsequential part of the Bible, you will see, I hope, that you lose something meaningful out of it. Now, Bruski and Lee in this book shows us that this is true for Mark 10.45. In chapter 5, as they explain the verse's contribution to explain Jesus' birth, they write, I quote, Without chapter 10, verse 45, and 14, verse 24, which is built on and confirms um, 10, 45, it would be much harder for Mark's audience then or now to grasp the author's atonement theology. In this sense, the contribution of 1045 to Mark's theology of atonement is undeniable, as is its contribution to how Mark wants his audience to understand the meaning of Jesus' death and to appreciate this narrative in which the passion of Jesus holds a vital position. End quote. So if we don't have this verse, we would lose something of the atonement. And since the atonement is so dear to us Christians, this is something we can be very thankful for. So I appreciate how by highlighting this, the authors make me appreciate, okay, make me appreciate the precious position this verse holds in the Gospel of Mark. So lots of appreciation left and right. But having said that, um, allow me to bring up a criticism. I would say that, I would just say up front, that this is a case of mismanaged expectation, okay? So, I, and it's probably my fault for expecting something that was never promised in the first place. But I would like to point out that when you have a book with the title, A Ransom for Many, which is an exposition of Mark 10, 45, I expected a thorough discussion on the ransom view of the atonement. And they don't give one. 
for those who don't know what this ransom view of the atonement is, it's just saying that when Jesus paid a ransom to save us, he paid it to the devil. Now, there are many problems with this, and uh, some which they explain in this book, but it is a fairly long discussion, and a discussion which I was hoping to find in this book. Um, for Because right now, we don't believe that we pay a ransom to the devil, but rather, we say that it is a propitiation to God. So, Jesus paid a price, and that price was paid to God, because God's wrath needs to be satisfied. Okay, The wrath of God needs to be satisfied. So, um, the devil is not in the picture, at least in terms of uh, the ransom, the price paid. So, as I said, it's not that the book doesn't address it. They do. In chapter 4, after explaining how ransom is used as a metaphor to describe how God redeems his people from sins, lawlessness, transgressions, and a futile lifestyle. Okay, I quote those things. Um, so, having explained about this ransom as metaphor, the authors write, I quote, Since the condition from which the many are ransomed or redeemed is not made clear in Mark 10.45, it seems safe to presume that it is figurative here as well. Instead, Mark shows Jesus employing the figure of ransom and redemption mainly to describe the effect of his death. Through his death, Jesus becomes the way that the many are redeemed, presumably from death and presumably by God. If the ransom in Mark 10.45 is a metaphor, then common questions like, to whom is this ransom being paid, probably misses the point. Mark's focus in this verse is not to whom the payment is made. End quote. It seems safe. That's what they say. If the ransom in Mark is a metaphor, that's what they wrote. Questions like, to whom is this ransom being paid, probably misses the mark. I don't know about you, but it seems that um, there are too many seems, ifs, and probabilities that it doesn't give me a good um, confidence. It doesn't give me. It doesn't help me sleep at night because there doesn't seem to be enough um, support for why they would say so. I need more security in my exposition. I'm probably strange in that way. But wait. There is an appendix. Maybe uh, Bruski and Lee will give me what I want, what I need, the confidence, the assurance that what I believe to be true is true. Maybe I'll get it there. They probably don't want to get bogged down in the theological debate about the ransom view because that would distract them from their main point in the chapters they are writing. If true, if, then all I got to do is just finish the book and read the appendix to my satisfaction later. So I finished the book, and I eagerly flipped to the appendix 2. And I was disappointed. Now, to be fair, again to the authors, it does say, it does do what it says on the title. A short history of the ransom view of the atonement. And it is short. It's shorter than appendix 1, the six recommendations, uh, book recommendations. And it is just a history of who believe what, when, and how it's steadily, gradually change. 
but it says very little. I would even say it says nothing at all about the biblical basis for people believing in the ransom view and why we should not. I, I want something more than seems, ifs, and probabilities. I, I want the authors to tell me that those old guys, those ancient fathers and so on, those early Christians, they got it all wrong. And that um, what they should have done, which is what we have done, is to look at the ransom as a metaphor. That ransom as a metaphor is the correct interpretation so that we don't need to ask the question, who is the ransom paid to? Now, I want to illustrate why a word, just one word, and its meaning is so important. Because another atonement-related word is propitiation. Propitiation uh, is found in Romans 3.25. Now, propitiation talks about um, making satisfaction to please, to appease God's wrath. Now, some have argued that a better translation is expiation. All right? So it's a removal of guilt, if, I, if I'm not wrong. So there is a difference between propitiation and expiation. And for some of us, those are just meaningless words. But there is meaning. And the meaning is similar. But that small difference can lead the preacher and thus the congregation in a wildly different direction. So that is why a word can be important in our understanding of what Christ has done on the cross. That atonement what that means. Now the thing is, while propitiation is a technical word, it's so technical that it invites everyday Christians to study it, to understand what it actually means. Ransom, on the other hand, is a common enough word that most Christians would just assume it means what it means in everyday life. And ransoms are paid to people. This means that in reading Mark 10.45, it is natural, so natural to see Jesus paying a ransom. And if you're paying a ransom, you're paying a ransom to Satan, to release those who were ensnared by him, by the devil. In fact, it's easy to imagine there's a preacher somewhere right now, in, even as you are listening to this podcast or reading this uh, blog post, you can imagine that someone is taking the word ransom and just running with it. Tourists are captured by terrorists and ransom. Rich kids are pulled into vans by kidnappers and ransom. Young men and women are promised jobs by scammers and ransom. And the ransoms are paid to terrorists, kidnappers and scammers. And even in the Old Testament and New Testament, Ransoms were paid to evil slave owners. And if we take the literal sense of ransom, it's plain to everyone to see that Jesus paid a ransom to the devil to release us. Can I get an amen to that? <laughs> but that would be wrong. Everything I just said was wrong. To Bruski and Lee, emphasizing the question, on who the ransom was paid to is unhelpful. They don't think they, they they have written clearly over here that they don't think that that is what the um, mark intended. That ransom should be taken as a metaphor. It leaves the question of who the 
ransom was paid to unanswered because it it is not necessary. It's like a parable. The details don't really matter. Um, I mean, the parable of the sower. Do we ask what type of seed it was? We don't because it does not matter to the story. In the same way, the ransom, according to Bruski and Lee, it doesn't matter. It's not even uh, asked or suggested that the ransom was paid to someone. Now, the problem I would put here is, in my personal opinion, reading this book, they don't go far enough to persuade us that the ransom question is um, can be dismissed. And, and because of this, because they, they give so little attention to this um, question, to this uh, issue, I think that it is a missed opportunity. And not just that, I think that it is a near tragedy <laughs> because it could have made this a better book. You see, the publication of this book seems to be fundamentally flawed because it is not needed. In chapter 1, the very chapter that makes the case for the reason for this book, I quote, Many interpreters have recognized the importance of Mark 10.45. But, as with every consensus, there are some who disagree. Julius Wellhausen, for example, in his monumental commentary, downplayed the weightiness of Mark 10.45 and, relatedly, the atoning significance of Jesus' death within Mark's Gospel. Nevertheless, most biblical scholars do agree that Mark 10.45 is important. Even popular Bible teachers like Irving Jensen, Warren Worsby, Mark Max Lucado and Chuck Swindle have presented 1045 as a key verse. For many, the significance of Mark 1045 within the second gospel is self-evident. End quote. Now that's very important. They all say, most of them say, that the significance is self-evident. Now there are some who disagree. But there is nothing in this book. There's nowhere else in this book do we read about Julius Wellhausen and how or why he downplays the weightiness of Mark 10.45. Instead, we get a book that merely elaborates what the authors themselves admit many see as self-evident. And what does it mean when something is self-evident? It, it's something like reading the headline, Scientists prove that the sun rises in the east, or that water is wet, or fire is hot. I mean, it's self-evident. We know there's probably some scientific geekery happening behind those headlines. But for most of us, we don't need these things to confirm what we already believe is true. And that is the problem with this book. This is a solution in need of a problem, or a resolution in need of a conflict, or a superhero movie in need of a villain. Julius Wellhausen might make a good villain. If not him, then my suggestion would be the ransom view. Put it as a contrast so that we see that there is something at stake. Because otherwise, even the implications, the chapter 6, the implications seem, in a word, self-evident. So there is sadly no villains here. There is no conflict. There is no problem, as far as I can see. And thus we have an informative but ultimately 
dull book. Dull not in the sense of the writing skills, but dull in the sense that there is no sense of urgency. There is no burning need to address a problem. But you know what? As I was reflecting on things that are self-evident, I also read in the news today, according to British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, 100% of women do not have penises. There was a time when knowing what is a woman, what is, what is a woman, what is a man, is self-evident. <sighs> so that got me thinking. Maybe at this point in time, I don't fully appreciate, okay, this is me speaking, I don't fully appreciate what this book attempts to do because I live in a time, thank God, where there is no need for it because these things are self-evident. But in the last days, there will come times of difficulty and many will turn away from the truth. Many will have itchy ears. Many will believe that, many may believe that, up means down, left means right. Came not to be served, but to serve means Christian authorita authoritarianism. And giving his life as a ransom for many means give the preacher money, money, and more money. And the key verse of the Gospel of Mark is not Mark 10.45, but Mark 3.22, where the scribes say, Jesus is possessed by Beelzebub. There may come a time where what we hold to be self-evident, such as what is a woman, is no longer self-evident. And in those times, this book and the scholarship that comes with this book will bolster the walls as Christians man the defenses to once again defend the faith. So with that, I fully appreciate the attempt of the authors in this book for what they have done. And I also hope that there will not come a time that uh, what is currently self-evident no longer is. This is a Reading and Readers review of A Ransom for Many, Mark 10.45 as a Key to the Gospel by John Lee and Daniel Bruski. 200 pages published by Lexham Academic in April 2023. Available for $9.99 in Amazon Kindle and $16.99 in Logos. In case you missed it, Faith Life and Logos have free books out for April. The Logos free book is The New Testament Commentary Guide, a brief handbook for students and pastors by Nijay Gupta. I've gone through it. It's free, so I got it. And if you are a pastor or Bible student, I would just tell you, just get it. Because it does what it says. It will guide you on New Testament commentaries. There are so many commentaries around and he has gone through many of them and he, gave, he gives us his thoughts on many of these commentaries and makes recommendations. I won't review it for the same reason I won't review a dictionary. A dictionary is useful, but it's not something I can and will read cover to cover. Instead, in the next episode of Reading and Readers, I will review Faith Life's free book. Okay, so that's another free book and that is from Faith Life. And the book is Prayer, Communing with God in Everything. Collected insights from A.W. Tozer, compiled by W.L. Siever. So until next time, bye-bye. <music>